0: Hello and welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, as always, Shane Lamaster. I want to start off by saying welcome to all of our listeners again and thanking all of you for your continued listenership and for liking and sharing our podcasts when we post them on social media. That's really how we get the message out to as many people as possible. Our reach only goes so far, but with your help on social media, just liking and sharing the content uh, that you find useful and spreading the word about this podcast to your friends and family, it really does help us get this message out and uh, we really appreciate it. I also want to let our listeners know that you can donate to the podcast. We don't take any profits from the podcast, but all donations will go towards upgrading our systems in the near future. I believe this is episode 27, so we're getting close to our goal of 40 episodes uh, when we will use whatever donation money comes in to upgrade our microphones, upgrade, upgrade our computer systems so that we can edit better and so that we can provide you all with better sound quality. So please like and share and donate to the podcast. I believe there will be a link to donate at the bottom of whatever um, link you're using or whatever podcast app you're using. So feel free to donate if you find value in this podcast. As always, we're sponsored by my private practice counseling and consulting company, MindOps. You can find us at mindops.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S We're a mobile and eclectic counseling company. Uh, we do one-on-one sessions. We do sessions with teams, small and large groups, businesses. Um, individuals, military, all sorts of different people and we can offer sessions uh, one-on-one in person and at a distance through teletherapy either over the phone or through um, some uh, video apps. So we have a number of specializations as well. We specialize in psychedelic integration therapies, uh, general psychotherapy, sport and performance psychology, and addiction therapy and hold licensures in a couple of those areas. So if you have any mental health needs or just want to enhance your mental wellness and optimize how you use your mind, feel free to reach out to us at mindops.com. Also, please check out our YouTube channel. It's the MindOps YouTube channel where we've posted a number of videos that we find useful as well as videos that we've made ourselves kind of breaking down a lot of the topics that we go over on the podcast in greater depth. So if you find some of these topics interesting and want to learn more about them, please visit our YouTube page or reach out to us uh, through the through the website. That's the best way to contact us, and we will get back to you as soon as we can. So for the good news section of the podcast, we want to spread a little hope and joy out in the world um, at a time when mo- most of our news is negative. So today we're going to share a good news story from the Good News Network, as always. And this... Um, this article reads art teacher cheers up stressed out students by hosting a Bob Ross flash mob with wigs and paints. And, um, I chose this article because, uh, particularly because my wife is a huge fan of Bob Ross. Um, and so she, she said, I should definitely put this on the podcast. I just thought it was really cool how this art teacher was thinking outside the box and got really creative with a, uh, you know, one of those funding websites in order to spur up some inspiration in, in their students when they were recognizing that the students were getting kind of bored with class. So um, looks like they from the picture they bought all the students uh, Bob Ross wigs and full outfits to look just like Bob Ross as well as painting supplies. So that was, that was pretty cool um, how people are getting creative in order to enhance learning. Which we'll probably talk about later in the podcast as well. There's another good news story that I just thought I'd mention real quick, and it reads NASA happily reports that Earth is greener with more trees than 20 years ago, and it's thanks to China and India. And I read into this article, and it was really cool to see that, um, you know, to see some good news about forestation and this new movement uh, that's going on in a number of countries called greening, where they will intentionally plant um, many, many thousands of trees, and it is having a, a relatively large effect. Um, obviously, if if you can see it from space, that's pretty impressive. And they're using um, really uh, precise telemetry uh, measurements from satellites uh, to be able to measure the forestation on the planet down to what they say uh, is 500 meter patches so they can be ver- relatively accurate with with how much forestation is going and lastly to note about this it does say in the article that the greening does not necessarily offset the de- the deforestation that's going on across the globe especially in the amazon but um it is impressive that um you know positive efforts are being made to bring back some of some of the natural forestation across the globe. So I thought that was really interesting and, and uh, good news that we can uh, all uh, appreciate. So today we have a very special guest, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Scott Shannon, who I've known for a couple of years now. He is a uh, psychiatrist by trade over at the Wholeness Center here in Fort Collins. And is a publisher of a number of books, um, a couple of which are entitled "Mental Health for the Whole Child" and "Parenting the Whole Child," uh, and that was published through Norton Publishers. Um, and out at the Wholeness Center, um, Dr. Shannon is uh, not only doing ketamine-assisted therapies out there, but it is also uh, a research site for Phase Three uh, MAPS trials for the MDMA. Studies, which is really cool to have in our local area um, some really big studies going on by some of the leaders in the industry. Um, Scott is uh, you know a very interesting interesting guy, and I thought that uh, having him on the podcast and talking about how he c- sort of conceptualizes consciousness and what he 's working on in this field. Um, would shed some some light, some cutting-edge light onto what we talk about on this podcast, which, which is consciousness. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Shannon. Um, I want to um, start out by asking you the same question I ask all my guests, and uh, feel free to respond however you wish. And that question is, um, w- the podcast name is Conversations with the Mind, and I just want to know what does that phrase mean to you, and how does it resonate? Um, what comes up for you when you hear that phrase, Conversations with the Mind?
1: Thanks, Shane. Well, happy to be here. I think it's uh, a wonderfully broad topic and I think it's uh, one that invites some free-ranging thought. I've always been been interested in consciousness. In fact, I went to the University of Arizona in the early 70s and my honors thesis there was uh, looking at theories of consciousness. And the first advisor they sent me out to was a doctor out in the desert, little known at that time by the name of Andrew Weil, and I've been interested in exploring that concept since, and I'd say that at this point, the work with ketamine, the work with ketamine-assisted therapy, the work with MDMA, we're exploring becoming a site for psilocybin trials. To me, it's just another uh, dialogue in conversations with the mind, and I'm I'm really just persistently and deeply curious about the mind, and I enjoy being at the cutting edge of these explorations, kind of like a scout.
0: Yeah, really, like a like an explorer, like Lewis and Clark, right? Going into these uncharted territories. I think the mind is uh, the mind and consciousness itself is such an underexplored area, um, and yet it is something that we all have to engage with on a daily basis and it it surprises me with how little emphasis i guess there is on personal exploration of consciousness in everyday life um, you know that i see in the general population there's a lot of um, there are a lot of people out there i think that that have a desire to explore not only their own consciousness but the larger consciousness collective consciousness but there's not too many hardcore scientific research studies pinning anything in particular down about consciousness? It, it seems to be all theory so far.
1: Well, I think it is theory. In the last 20 years in particular, we have an enormous amount of neuroimaging data, particularly coming out of uh, Robin carhart harriss lab at the University of London. Uh, amazing stuff that's telling us not only what the, what consciousness looks like, but also what the effect of psychedelics are on consciousness and what those alterations mean, particularly with the default mode network. And what I've seen is that after decades in which the predominant focus in our culture and particularly our psychiatric paradigm has been in sedating, suppressing the psyche, that we're now moving into an era where we're looking at a more evocative model the psyche where we're calling it forth. There's just enormous pervasive and deep interest in these topics of consciousness and psychedelics that I've seen over the last three to five years in particular. Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. uh, I just came from a psychedelics conference in Arizona that sold out. Um, we're We're seeing just a level of interest in this, particularly among people in their twenties and thirties, but also all ages. I'm having, um, sort of baby boomers in their sixties coming into my office and wanting to do some exploration with ketamine because they were intrigued by what they, what happened to them in the 1960s. And then it sort of got pushed underground, forgotten, and now we're dusting it off again. And I think with, with good effect.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And how long have you been practicing
1: practicing, um, psychiatry? Oh, it's getting on towards 40 years now.
0: Yeah. um, What I've noticed, and one of our mutual friends publishes on this topic, is the idea that there's a a very skewed... a very skewed perception or maybe um, practice orientation in these helping fields towards reducing mental, uh, negative mental health symptoms or curing depression or anxiety or working on uh, disorders. And now I, I, I hear you saying that the field is starting to shift, especially in the psychedelic field, where instead of having a primary focus on curing a lot of these things which there's a lot of great research on the effectiveness of some of these psychedelic treatments on these disorders but now there's this more evocative model where people want to enhance their consciousness they want to explore the good parts of their consciousness and become more human rather than just working on the baggage is that right
1: right yeah so I, I think what we've seen is with medications like benzodiazepines, antidepressants, antipsychotics, is, number one, that we're not offering anyone a cure for their mental health issues. We're offering them suppression of symptoms. And I think there's a fear that, uh, that if they are ex- fully experience their anxiety or depression or their sadness or their passion, that they will be out of control and be unable to tolerate it. And I think we're moving into a new era where we're realizing that if we want to put people on the path to health and healing, we have to help them befriend their consciousness and their psyche and dig into it deeper and become comfortable with what's in there. And this is particularly true of trauma. And that's the work we're doing with MDMA in our study, which is MDMA assisted psychotherapy for the treatment of severe PTSD. Yeah.
0: And um what are some of the uh, so you mentioned current studies with neurofeedback, um, current current studies with um, I'm sorry, I'm I'm blanking here. Um, uh, the default mode network with ketamine assisted therapies. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what 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 some of the investigations you're you're trying to look at specifically with with how we engage with our mind on ketamine?
1: Well, is a very interesting agent. It's been around since the early 60s, approved in this country in 1970, and mainly used as an anesthetic, uh, helping people go into deeper states of anesthesia. And what we found out in the late 90s is that it was useful for a variety of other things. It began to be um, abused in the 90s, and it was scheduled as a, a drug of abuse. But at this point, it's one of the most widely used medicines in the world. It's a World Health Organization essential medicine. It's used for battlefield anesthesia. It's used for third-world anesthesia. It's used in every pediatric emergency room to sedate little ones who come in with a laceration or need a procedure done. And what we know after 50-plus years of use is that it's a very safe medicine. It doesn't repress uh, cardiac function or breathing. But what it does do is it, um, it's a dissociative anesthetic. So it does not remove consciousness like other anesthetic agents. It does not render you unconscious. It just disconnects you from your body and ultimately from your cortex. So what happens is the thalamus, which is in the midbrain, is a relay station. And ketamine affects there to break up the transmission to the cortex. So the cortex, like our frontal lobes is where we have our sense of ourself. This is where the default mode network comes into play. This is our personal narrative, our biases, our negative thoughts about ourselves, our regrets and uh, goals and aspirations. It's really who we are. So it's interesting that ketamine, by cutting off all this stuff, and, and the other piece that I should say is that with depression and anxiety, it looks like we have enhanced function of the default mode network. Mm. But with meditation and other types of brain training, we can see decreased effect of decreased activity in the default mode network, which leads to less depression, less anxiety. Now, it's interesting that ketamine turns off the default mode network and gives people a break from these negative loops. And if you've ever sat with someone who's very deeply depressed or incredibly anxious, what you'll find is their mind goes in these sort of non-logical loops that are difficult, if not impossible, to break up. They're these sort of maladaptive bugs in the hard uh, software, if you will. And so what we're doing with ketamine is we're rebooting the brain, turning off the default mode network, giving people an experience of pure consciousness without their cortex. And the the research shows that people are enormously improved in their depression almost immediately with ketamine. Suicidal thinking often goes away in the first hour. Often it's gone when people come back. And the other thing we're finding is that it causes a burst of activity in the hippocampus. It causes a release of BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And those things enhance learning, enhance memory, and really help people to sort of step into a different place. Because one of the theories of depression at this point is that it stops neuroplasticity in the hippocampus, and it stops us from learning new things because we get locked in these uh, loops ketamine breaks that up ketamine offers you uh, a refresh a reboot it's It's just really an incredibly interesting and safe tool for us to explore consciousness
0: and i've I've heard um, the default mode network sort of described as um, these are automatic patternings in our life you know the things we we think automatically about ourselves and we do automatically and and the patterns that we uh, showing our behavior based on, you know, experiences and traumas and things like that, that we just sort of get caught in our own uh, loop um, of how we approach life and how we go about our daily lives. Is that, is that also an accurate representation of the deep, default mode network and how it operates? Yes, okay. exactly. Um, so I love that idea, uh, especially how psychi- a lot of psychedelics do this, but ketamine in particular for me really helps to sort of put that default mode network on pause and then even sometimes shatter it altogether and show me you know, exactly which patterns are maladaptive for me and which ones are not working and what small changes I can make to these uh, patterns in my behavior and thoughts to get better outcomes. Um, and it really allows us to, you know, in a Buddhist perspective, it may seem like um, psychedelics allow us an opportunity to take that observer's perspective Um, Much more easily than um, you know, it would take years of meditation to maybe achieve that observer perspective But these psychedelic experiences really take you out of your patterns and show you exactly what what you're doing and I love that about it Um, I've also heard um, ketamine be uh, described as um, a Dissociative hypnotic. Have you heard about? uh, Heard heard the term
1: hypnotic? Well, it's a dissociative agent. Okay. Um, Hypnotics in psychiatric and medical parlance usually means something that puts you to sleep. So sedative hypnotics like Ambien are something, but it's definitely a dissociative agent. And because it throws you into a type of trance, you could say it's akin to hypnosis. Mm -hmm. So it might be just a little uh, adjustment of Mm -hmm. the meaning of that term. Do you think um, being in this state, do you think it it offers... um,
0: Greater susceptibility to uh, suggestion like like hypnosis?
1: Well uh, one of our interests at Wholeness Center right now is doing ketamine assisted therapy because it helps to break people out of in some ways break them out of the trance they've been in that's mm-hmm. causing them so much problem and let them see that they have choice. Trance is is a much broader term than what you're probably familiar with or assume based on hypnosis but Trance is any time that uh, we get into a state of consciousness that's uh, duplicated and uh, consistent. And so our everyday life with our beliefs and our default mode network is really a type of trance. And ketamine helps to sort of break us out of that trance, helps us to see that that trance, in Buddhist terms, the maya, Mm -hmm. um, the illusion of life, and that our life is is basically a set of beliefs that we can change and step in and out of, which is particularly comforting for someone who's miserable, suffering, depressed, or anxious mm-hmm. and um, what fascinated me about uh, ketamine
0: when I first started reading about it is its uses with uh, pediatrics and uh, babies, and also that you know use with adults that one of the most common commonly reported um, side effects, I guess, when, when they use it as an anesthetic is that sometimes people well, very frequently, people will report, um, very challenging spiritual experiences accompanied with the anesthetic. Um, my, my question is that if we use it so frequently in infants because of its safety profile, um, you know, it doesn't depress the respiratory tract, things like that. Um, do you think that these spiritual experiences, um, or experiences of consciousness are affecting the infant in some way, positively or negatively. Um, I know that a lot of cultures uh, across the world give their infants um, psychedelic mushrooms, things like that, to to help um, bring them into the world in, in a spiritual sense. I'm I'm fascinated by uh, you know what maybe the baby's um, neurofeedback. Uh, or a neurological experience is while they're on ketamine for anesthetic
1: reasons? Well, so infants and neonates typically wouldn't be exposed to ketamine. Um, the exposure in pediatrics is mainly from pediatric emergency rooms. I would say there might be for kids, for example, that would have a uh, ear infection mm-hmm. and need to get in, uh, chronic ear infections and need to get tubes. Those kids may have some exposure to ketamine Um, but often they're layered on top of other anesthetic agents, and so it's clearly not a very pure uh, ketamine event, and they're often quite sedated otherwise. But kids that come into a pediatric emergency room, if your six-year-old cuts their forehead on the coffee table and is screaming, I worked in an emergency room for four years before I became a psychiatrist, and this is not a fun problem to have. Because you can't convince a six-year-old that the needle you want to stick in their forehead to put lidocaine in and numb it so you can sew them up is going to be a good thing. Yeah, They just will scream harder and fight and buck, and it's not something you can do. But with ketamine, you give them an injection in their thigh, sort of when they're not looking, and it's just quick. And by the time they think about protesting, they're already sedated, and they're using a dose that's six times as high as we use in psychiatry. And that allows them to suture up the kid's head. And 45 minutes later, when the kid is waking up, uh, their forehead's all sutured and done. It's a done deal. So at the at the higher doses, obviously, uh, ketamine produces unconsciousness. It can. And certainly, as you move into doses like 2 milligrams per kilogram, uh, people don't typically have much memory. They can't bring anything back from their experience. So... The doses that we use um, in psychiatry usually start about 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, and they'll go up to usually 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. That can be either IV, intravenous, or intramuscular injection. So those are the doses we use because we want people to have a full conscious experience of the dissociation, the disconnection. And to come back with memories and uh, have some uh, have something they can bring back from their journey.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the most important parts of using any of these medicines is not to overdo it. you know to be able to bring back useful information from the experience is what makes these medicines so powerful. Um, I think my my own misuse of psychedelic substances in my teens and early 20s where i was doing you know heroic doses but not for therapeutic means for for recreational means and for um, enhancing concerts and things like that um there wasn't i mean i was i was downloading a ton of data but i i could never really bring much back so it didn't have couldn't integrate it yeah it didn't have much therapeutic value to me um just enhanced the moment you know certainly um, but nowadays, with, with different intentions going in and, and working with different dosages, um, I find that the the amount of information that I can bring back from, um, you know, whatever we're connecting with uh, through psychedelics, I can bring so much more back. And maybe that's a collective consciousness, maybe that's a um, Keshe records or something that I'm bringing back information from, but that's a, a fascinating aspect of consciousness that that I, I like exploring through psychedelic medicines.
1: I think when we operate from a evocative model of consciousness where we're valuing the, the information, the experience of the psyche, that clarity, memory, integration becomes critical factors. It's not about just getting high. It's not about disconnecting. Um, it's not about recreation, really and i think you know one of the things you talked about dose is uh, paracelsus who was a medieval physician said uh, one of the true aphorisms is that the only difference between a medicine and a poison is the dose mm. and just to know that uh, there is not only a dose amount but there's also a dosing frequency and mm-hmm. you know if doing these agents once a month or once a year in a spiritual exploration is a good and right thing. That doesn't mean that doing it every night is a good and right thing.
0: Yeah, <laughs> everything can be abused. My wife, um, who's, who's currently getting her undergraduate in um, uh, nutrition field, uh, she frequently tells me about um, toxicity levels of vitamins, common vitamins, and you know how the general public... Uh, thinks that you know if I just take more multivitamin or take more you know 10,000 IU's of vitamin D every single day I'll be good. But she says you know even things that are essential like vitamin D can become toxic, can become a poison based on the dose. Even water. Yeah, even water. That's crazy. Um, yeah, so everything in moderation for sure, and and knowing what's what's best for you particularly. Um, so when you're talking about ketamine assisted therapy, you said you were giving these folks an opportunity to experience um, pure consciousness without the cortex. Um, and what came up in my mind is, you know, when I think of my own experiences without the cortex uh, involved in the process, um, it seems like it shuts down our um, desire to want to judge or analyze what, what we're experiencing and just allows us to be in it in the moment. And we experience things like time dilation and, um, you know, openings and ego deaths and things like that. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to what some of the benefits could be of temporarily shutting off that cortex in order to access these states, because the cortex has been, you know, we've been, we've all been educated uh, and, and, and told that the cortex is what makes us human. It's what makes us different from other animals is, is our larger cortex and our ability to think of the self as a self. Um, I'm wondering what some of the benefits of turning that off could be. Well,
1: it's a blessing and it's a curse, Shane. Yeah. So one of the things we see is that I'd say that the vast majority of people that I see that come into me with psychiatric issues are there because their cortex has got the better of them. There are clearly some genetic issues that can get in the way. You know, things like uh, autism and schizophrenia that are very clearly sort of a biologically driven, maybe neurologically driven uh, illness with severe symptoms. But I'd say the vast majority of people coming in with anxiety, depression, etc. Well, sometimes even trauma, although it's often out of their hands and not of their doing, but they they come in because they're in maladaptive loops, with their cortex with their default mode network their negative loops that are self-critical their fearful loops that are obsessive and anxious their traumatic loops where they're looping into um, the horror of their trauma that they've not been able to digest so these are things that we need to figure out ways how to reprogram how to adjust the programming within the brain and take charge of it and not just let ourselves be the slave of it and so that's why agents like ketamine mdma psilocybin are very interesting to me and also things like neurofeedback meditation and hypnosis because these are things that allow us to take charge of the cortex and begin to uh, celebrate its plasticity instead of being trapped by it Mm -hmm. and you know for our listeners just so you know, we have a, a few
0: books here on the table, and one of these books is uh, written by a f- really famous ketamine
1: uh, researcher, um, I don't even know, what, what decade was, was he? John Lilly w- was doing dolphin research in the 1950s, he was doing sensory deprivation work in the 1960s, he was doing um, ketamine explorations in the 70s and 80s, he, he's mm-hmm. a brilliant guy all over the map.
0: Yeah. And so this book that I just picked up, I haven't read it yet, but it's titled Programming and Metaprogramming in the Human Biocomputer just fascinates me because my own background is in sport and performance psychology. So I've studied pretty extensively on uh, the psychology of optimal performance, particularly in athletes, but it's transferable to the general population, uh, a lot of these skills and the ability to go into our own minds and unlock the potential to... Like you said, program and reprogram maladaptive um, actions into more productive or optimal functions of the mind um, is, I think, a, that's a benefit to everybody. Not just people who suffer from mental health um, issues, um, trauma, PTSD, any, any of those things, but also for people um, who don't suffer from those things, for the general population.
1: Yes, clearly. <laughs> oh, sorry, that's my dog if you heard that. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, I think it's, um, it's a range of things. So ketamine and other tools like that give us, give anyone the ability to recalibrate and retool. And I think it's, it moves us from this sort of pathological model of psychiatry where you have an anxiety disorder, you have OCD, you have depression, and I'm okay, to it's, yeah, where do we sit on that spectrum of uh, overactivity? of the default mode network? And how do I take charge of my own life and uh, experience? Yeah, it's really empowering. I think it's really empowering for the
0: listeners to hear something like that. I know it was for me to, to know that that power is within us at any point, as long as we're shown the way on how to, how to use it. And I believe it can be trained you know, through meditation, mindfulness, uh, accessing your consciousness and using it as a tool rather than having it use you as a tool. Um, you did mention um, that the new uh, research on ketamine, and I, I don't know if this is research that you're doing, um, but it enhances learning. Is this, is this one of your research studies you're doing?
1: No, but this is uh, material that's been published in the last few years, is that ketamine enhances the neuroplasticity of the hippocampus. It allows the memory center of the brain to start learning again. And one of the sort of very current and active theories of depression is that we get depressed when we stop learning and taking in new memories, Mm -hmm. when we get into this sort of disconnected loop where we're just in our bed and um, ruminating. And ketamine breaks us out of that pattern and helps us to start learning and enhances the neuroplasticity, the release of something called BDNF in the brain that allows us to learn and maybe enhances baseline learning And so that's why we're very interested now, not only in ketamine-assisted therapy, and what people are telling me is that uh, they're coming in for a ketamine experience to treat their severe depression, but I have them go the same day to their psychotherapist, and what they're finding is they're able to break through and step outside their old patterns to a very enhanced degree we're doing uh, sometimes ketamine-assisted therapy, which is under the influence of ketamine lozenges in the immediate influence, but we're also beginning to explore ketamine-assisted neurofeedback, and I'm just fascinated by the ability of someone to retrain their brain with neurofeedback.
0: Yeah, so maybe you could explain to some of the listeners what neurofeedback is and how it's being used in
1: conjunction with ketamine to enhance learning. So neurofeedback is a is a type of biofeedback. So biofeedback at its simplest is basically the concept that if we give you um, some sort of readout of any parameter, any physiological parameter, you can learn to control it. So let's say you're having chronic headaches and we find out that you have increased muscle tension uh, in your uh, head, scalp, forehead. We can put a uh, muscle tension monitor on your forehead and gives you a graph, computer graph, real-time, immediate, of the tension in your forehead. And then if you sit there for 40 minutes and look at that screen, you can figure out how to make it go down. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously you figure if you flex your forehead, it goes up. But how do you learn to really relax your forehead? So you'll try a number of different things. It's called trial and error learning or operant conditioning. And, you know, basically this is stuff Pavlov discovered and B.F. Skinner. But it's the kind of thing that um, we can teach you to control blood pressure. We can teach you to control even your heart rate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Heart rate variability is a parameter that's widely being tested. But uh, neurofeedback is learning to control your brain waves, your EEG pattern, real time. So what we do is we hook you up to electrodes that monitor your EEG, electroencephalogram, and then you can learn to make changes in it. So what we do is we get a brain map or QEEG, and Q stands for quantitative, so it's a quantitative EEG. And let's say the classic thing that we work on is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. Let's say you're bringing in your 10-year-old child because He's not able to focus in the classroom. He's inattentive, daydreaming, impulsive. We do a QEEG and find out that his frontal lobes are slow. That's the executive part of the brain. And it's got underactivity. Usually it's an immaturity thing. But like any training that you do, like training for a marathon or, uh, Shane, training for martial arts, Mm -hmm. um, this is something that there is a training effect, and the more you train on it, the better you can become. So what we do is we hook up this young man to uh, electroencephalogram, put him in front of a TV screen, and tell him that every time the movie that he wants to watch, every time that it plays, that's when his frontal lobes are more active, and every time the movie stops, it's when his frontal lobes are less active. So you put the typical 6, 8, 10-year-old in front of their favorite movie and they can figure out how to make it run. That is, they can figure out how to increase the activity of their frontal lobes through trial and error learning. And if they do it uh, 10 times, 15 times, 20 times, uh, sessions that they're working on it, this training will have an effect. Just like if you go out and run 5 miles to get ready for your 10K, after a few months you're going to be in better shape that's Mm -hmm. a training effect and you can train the brain. Nice.
0: Um, we use biofeedback in, uh, the sports psychology field quite frequently to help athletes, uh, train, um, to elicit flow states more readily train to, uh, control arousal levels, um, and become familiar with optimal states of arousal for competition, things like that, or for any sort of performance. You know, if you're a uh, an academic and a test taker, you know, and and test taking is not your thing. We can help train you to um, elicit uh, a calmer um, affect while taking a test. Uh, so we we use it in a way to to modulate arousal and things like heart rate and stuff like that too. But neurofeedback it, it hasn't really broken into our industry too much. And what I find What I find fascinating, what you're describing is that, you know, these kids can learn to turn on different parts of their brain, to engage parts of their brain that may be dormant or don't have enough repetition to kind of get kick-started on their own. Um, When I heard you first describing neurofeedback, what it it reminded me of is being able to manipulate and um, uh, have a different frequency output coming out of your brain is that also included so like being able to generate theta or alpha waves based on you
1: can train frequency so you can train up or train down like you can beta is fast activity which is associated with worry and if you want someone to be a better sleeper you can down train beta you can up train um, Delta or theta which are the slower waves if you want people to be more relaxed or more creative and with ADHD, you can up train alpha states. So you can up train or down train frequency. You can up train or down train amplitude. You can even up train or downtrain power as well. So there's a lot of different parameters that you can, and sort of the sky's the limit. Yeah, I think that would have really good implications for
0: most workplaces. You know, if, if you're working at Google and you need to be creative with your code writing and things like that, you know, whoever's running the facility could pump out a certain frequency into the workspace in order to enhance creativity um, if they had previously been trained or something like that. Well,
1: you know, the key thing to remember is that everybody's different. Mm. And what we find is there's basically two different ways to do neurofeedback. One way to do neurofeedback, if you walk into many offices that do neurofeedback, they'll say, great, we'll love to train you and they just hook you up and train you to a protocol that works for most people. Mm -hmm. I think it's much more advantageous to actually do the quantitative EEG assessment and find out what their pattern is. Because there are certain people, if you uptrain their frontal lobes, you're gonna make them more anxious and they will deteriorate. And so basically what I'm saying is that there's many different patterns that occur in the brain And you can't assume that everybody's the same because some people are dominated by fast frequencies. Some are dominated by slow frequencies. Some have too much speed in the front. Some have too much speed in the back. Mm -hmm. And what you need to do is customize it to their individual pattern. And so now there's a lot of elite athletes that are beginning to work with remote um, EEG trainers to help them get into better flow states because although some of the peripheral parameters like... um, heart rate variability or galvanic skin resistance can give you a sense of arousal. Working with QEG is going to be much more exacting about focus and flow states mm-hmm. because they're predominantly driven by the brain. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, flow has been an area of interest of mine since starting my uh, master's degree a number of years ago. And um, I, I find that... Um, you know, not only do I have my best performances, academic or athletic under flow states, but um, they're also the some of the most enjoyable um, experiences that I have, Yeah, flow states.
1: And flow states are basically when we get the default mode network out of the way. Yeah. I mean, the brain's still opt- or it, uh, functioning optimally, but we're not ruminating about the last time we tried to do this, or our last competition where we screwed up, or how the training hasn't been going well, or worrying about your aunt who's sick, or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, we get out of our own way. We get, get out let of our way. Happen. And that's what we're trying to do with ketamine-assisted therapy: mm-hmm. is get us out of our own way. Yeah. Um, just to touch one more
0: time on the on the frequency piece. Um, besides training people um, in uh, frequency states within their brain, is there I mean, I know there's uh, a lot of research and application to healing with specific frequencies too, with ultrasound, things like that, um, where you can use a particular frequency to um, heal various organs, you know, different organs operate at different frequencies and things like that. Um, do you find any greater benefit or do you think there'd be greater benefit uh, to using some of these
1: frequencies when in an open state um, psychedelic experience. So is the question really about frequencies and um, altered states of consciousness or about organ health?
0: Um, it's more like, uh, you know, do the, could the altered states of consciousness, um, because you're more uh, open to learning your body and your mind, more open to learning new new patterns. Do you think uh, that some of these other treatments like sound therapies or frequency therapies would have greater effect um, while in a psychedelic trance state?
1: I I think it does enhance the plasticity of the brain, so Mm -hmm. yes, that's likely true. Uh, I'm not as familiar with the research about um, frequency-specific training for organ health, but. I know that in terms of chronic health and ill health that our emotional health is probably the biggest single driver of our physical Mm well-being as we get into midlife and uh, old age yeah Um, I'm glad we're talking about
0: this I just recently this week uh, did a treatment at a new place here in Fort Collins called happy Whole you so I'm just gonna plug them real quick but um, they have these what's considered alternative treatment methods but really uh, some really cool state of the art stuff. So I did a, what's called a theta pod. Um, it looks like a space capsule, um, like, like a hyperbaric chamber. And I I would get in this chamber, um, and it has a computer screen where with like a menu of options and it says, you know, what area would you like to work on today? And you get to select three options. I think I chose memory and concentration, uh, de-stressing and, um, uh, enhanced performance or something and they also had like anxiety depression stuff like that but you choose three things you get in the theta pod and then she attaches electro stimulators to your ears some uh, binaural beats um, with accompanying uh, frequencies uh, for healing in your ears and then puts a eye shade over your eyes that uh, pumps out um, specific light frequencies based on your menu choices that you made so you get in the pod with all these um, contraptions on you and then You hit the start button, and the theta pod starts spinning. So um, after the first spin, you can't feel it, and it kind of feels like uh, anti-gravity a little bit. But you stay in there for 30 minutes, and um, I I got into a pretty deep meditative state with all those different treatment modalities going on. I thought it was pretty cool um, to combine the modalities in a way that had a greater effect than if they were used uh, singularly.
1: Well, I think in some ways what you're doing is you're tricking the brain with both entrainment and distraction. And uh, I'm up for it. Any way that we can uh, sort of metaprogram and begin to access plasticity is worth a try. Plus, this just sounds way cool and fun. It is. Um,
0: So just a general question based off what we've talked about so far. Um, In your ideal world, how would you choose to study consciousness as a phenomenon um, and as a means for experiencing optimal states of mind. If, if there were no restrictions on, you know, how we could conduct research, what do you think would be uh, some of the best ways to actually put some scientific evidence to some of these, like you said, like consciousness is largely theory-based, um, what we know or what we think we know about it. So how would we go about studying it and putting some actual data to the experience of consciousness?
1: I think what I would like to do if if the legality of these substances was not a challenge and we could just begin to roll out clinical research is that I would like to get a number of people who are either wanting to enhance their well-being or dealing with difficult symptoms and begin to do a combination of neurofeedback, altered states, and sort of experiential logs where we could track what their experience was like. And, uh, and then monitor their symptoms and their, you know, sort of the parameters that they're most interested in, their goals, so to speak. And just work with people in an ongoing way and collect data and begin to see, you know, for example, I have some suspicion right now that a lot of the sort of severely, chronically depressed people that I see get stuck in these ultra rigid cognitive states where there are negative loops, there's no outside processing, very limited new memories being created, very little learning, and that we need to do things to disrupt their equilibrium. In sort of chaos theory, we're trying to move them uh, from a current maladaptive steady state to a different steady state. And what I would be interested in doing is looking at the input of both, of really, of medications, agents, that could catalyze the shift and change and help people break out of these states. And whether that might be um, things like uh, psychedelic medicines, things like MDMA, but also things even like um, cannabis and maybe even some psychiatric drugs that are not used in an ongoing way to suppress but used more in a, a very intermittent Focused way to catalyze change. So it's really just trying to be out there on the edge of the paradigm about the evocative state of the psyche and really looking to catalyze change and enhance neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm.
0: So when you say catalyze change, the word that popped in my head was disruption. So disrupt what's currently going on, maladaptive patterning and loops. Um, And then also the reprogramming. And
1: and sometimes with disruption, there's also enhancement because there's sometimes things that people are doing that are really positive and good and we want to enhance them. There's sometimes things that need to be disrupted because they're sort of these chronic rigid states. And um, yeah, so it's, it's really just beginning to explore how we can create new terrains for people. Um, so they can have different experiences.
0: Yeah. With the enhanced learning component, um, is that enhanced learning happening while in in state, or is that enhanced learning that comes after the ketamine-assisted therapy, and then they notice that they have a greater ability to, to learn? Both. 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 Because I've found that in, in deep ketamine states, um, there's probably some learning going on, but it's more on my subconscious level. Um, and sometimes because of its disassociative nature, um, it's difficult sometimes to um, focus on tasks or focus on things in the physical environment. So, you know, I might I might have a closed eye experience and then an hour later I'll open my eyes and I'll still be sort of in state, sort of foggy. Um, vision is impaired a little bit. My um, Sensory-motor connections are not firing as, bad, as good as they could because it's, it's a you know, partial paralytic or something. And, and I find it difficult to engage with you know, reading materials or documentaries or common ways of learning. Um, it, it becomes uh, a little more challenging. But maybe the learning is happening in a totally different way than we're used to.
1: I think it's instead of uh, experiential learning, it's system learning. So you're trying to take the system of the brain, the network and hub phenomenon in the brain, and help that to learn new, new ways. So it's not going to be like, I want to learn ballet or I want to learn to memorize the presidents in order. This is, I want to learn to operate with, more, uh, with less amygdala and more frontal lobe. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a very different kind of learning and it's probably learning that you can't even wrap your arms around. Yeah, so it's not even
0: um yeah, not even what we would consider classical learning these days, but um more learning about the self, about how we engage with our own minds. I think that's far more valuable than than even learning a skill or learning a martial art or learning, you know, a subject. Um, but learning about yourself is really key to human experience in general and it's our task on this planet exactly and uh, I feel like a lot of people don't don't get into it enough you know they're they're satisfied with just engaging with with the surface level stuff
1: in well distractions distractions and numbing is often the way that many of us cope with the challenges of life Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the benefits and beauties of psychedelic medicine or this model of mental health that we're moving towards is that it really puts us on more in alignment with our deeper path and our true calling. And one of the things that happens, I think, both with ketamine, with psychedelics in general, it can happen in a number of different ways. I've got a whole list of things that I talk about as spiritual catalysts. So travel to third world countries, pilgrimages, fasting, uh, vision quests, uh, psychedelics. These are all things that have the ability to take us deeply out of our current state and uh, open us up to a new, broadly new, experience and perceptions. And one of the things that I think psychedelics does well um, is when they shut down that default mode network, they give us an unfiltered experience of ourselves, mm. And that unfiltered experience of ourself means that we have access to our deep knowledge, all of our experiences, without the biases and filters that we normally create. And it's like, you know, we're, we're all well defended in various different ways. We all have our shadows. We all have these things that uh, prevent us from seeing ourselves clearly as others see ourselves um and when we have this sort of deep whole self experience we realize things like oh i'm in the wrong career oh i'm in the wrong relationship oh i i need to do x y or z in my life and these profound epiphanies happen to people not because they're somehow buried in the psychedelics but they're they're buried in ourself and that we've robbed ourselves of having access from this deeper part. And it's really only by cleansing away the filters that we have that we can experience the deep self and have these profound insights. And so I I think there's really a time and place for spiritual catalysts for all of us in our lives when we need to be refreshed and rejoined to ourself Mm -hmm. because we get cut off. dismembered We need to remember
0: (laughs) yeah really reconnect um very powerful um maybe if you could just spend a just a couple minutes telling the audience about the wholeness center and sort of what your mission is out there and what you what sort of work you guys are doing um i mean we talked about the psychedelic stuff and the studies going on but you guys do a lot of stuff with nutrition and and other modalities as well maybe you could speak to that just for just a
1: couple minutes yeah we're um a very comprehensive integrative mental health center that's focused on the natural treatment assessment and treatment of mental health issues and challenges. So we have three naturopaths that work at our clinic, we have um, therapist counselors, we have three psychiatrists, soon to be four. We do IV nutrition, neurofeedback, we do ketamine work, ketamine assisted therapy, we do a lot of diet nutrition work, we do um, biofeedback work as well as neurofeedback. And our, our really our goal is to embrace the evocative model of the psyche, embrace the holistic uh, vision of health, of body, mind, spirit. We try to minimize the exposure and use of psychiatric medications, trying to see them more as a tool than a crutch. We help people get off psychiatric medication. We help people to sort out chronic problems. We have a lot of out-of-state traffic, um, even people coming in from other countries, That, because we're the largest and most comprehensive center of the type, of this type in, in the United States, at least at this time. We're, we're doing work with CBD. We published four papers out of our clinic on CBD, cannabidiol, right now, seeing that as a great tool for anxiety and trauma. And we're doing this work with MDMA, which we're, um, we were the first person in the MAPS network worldwide to give MDMA to a patient in phase three study that happened uh, about three weeks ago in my office with um, one of the candidates that I'm working with. So we're, um, we're happy to launch the phase three work with uh, MAPS, which is a great organization, the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. They're a nonprofit, a great source for don a great target for donations if you're so inclined. And uh, they've been a wonderful organization to work with. So, uh, what I'll say is that we're just really looking to continue to pioneer on the uh, frontiers of mental health and well being and to support our community and the people that come to work with us.
0: Great. And uh, what is the website for the Wholeness Center?
1: It's www.wholeness.com. I got that one a long time ago so i'm very happy with it. pretty easy (laughs) right on um well i want to thank you again
0: for coming on the podcast today uh super interesting conversation i hope you know i hope to have many more conversations like this with you in the future either recorded or not recorded um i want to remind all of our uh, listeners that we are sponsored by uh, mindops.com so visit us at mind-ops.com Uh, for all your counseling and consulting needs, or check out uh, wholeness.com and uh, the Wholeness Center up here in Fort Collins for any of your psychiatric or uh, nutritional or holistic um, therapy needs. Uh, Again, thank you for coming. Really appreciate it. And thank you to all of our listeners and to those who continue to donate and support our podcast. Uh, Please like and share all these podcasts, and let's get these words out, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Shane. Happy to be here. Thanks, Scott.